Something that uh, I hope everyone gets to experience in their life is a missions trip. And maybe you've always thought, well, that's for someone else. Uh, it, you can go. Uh, Juarez isn't very far. Chihuahua's not very far. So pray about uh, going this fall. If you're interested and God's touching your heart, make sure to talk with them at the table. So how's everyone doing? I hear it's supposed to be like 80 degrees today. You ready for it? So I think we should have swapped last Sunday with this Sunday for Mother's Day, because you're supposed to plant flowers on Mother's Day. That was not going to happen last week, right? So well, we're glad you're here. Uh, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we finish out uh, the book of 2 Timothy this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And next week we'll begin the book of Judges. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you uh, hungry for your word, recognizing your goodness in our lives. Uh, we've enjoyed uh, studying First and Second Timothy. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, there would be lasting fruit in our lives. There would be change that occurs, that we would see you and know you in a greater way. Would you bless this time in your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone loves a good ending. Isn't that true? If you go to the movies and you spend your savings to get that little movie ticket there and you, you go. Isn't it insane, the prices of, of movies? And, but you go and all of a sudden there's a terrible ending. Don't you feel a little bit disappointed? Or even worse, a movie that just has no ending. It's all this plot and this activity and then it's just like, okay, we're done. The movie's over. See you later. And you're like, wait, I wanted to know what, what the ending is. If you're a sports fan, you know there's nothing like a ninth inning home run or a field goal in overtime to bring about the victory. Even in music, the ending of a song is important. If the band kind of stumbles and just goes, dun, 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 bam, you're like, what happened there? And then when you're listening to a really good rock band, all of a sudden you get the big ending and you're like in your car, yeah, that was great, that was a, a good ending. I remember one of the best endings uh, for, that I can remember in sports history. It was 1988. I was 10 years old. It was the World Series. The Oakland A's were playing the Los Angeles Dodgers. I grew up in Southern Oregon. There's no pro baseball team there in Oregon. And so we rooted for the Oakland A's. Dennis Eckerdley's on the mound, if you remember him. He pitches sidearm. He would come underneath, and he was very effective. He'd come in at the end of the game. The A's were up four to three, and here comes Kurt Gibson to the plate. He was injured in both legs. He could hardly walk, hadn't played the whole game, and they put him in as a pinch hitter, as a designated hitter. A man's on second, and Kurt Gibson just basically swings with his arms because he has no power in his legs. He hits a home run, and the Dodgers win. And even though I wasn't a Dodgers fan, I knew that I was witnessing history. It was a great ending, defined as one of the best moments in sports history. Well, you guessed it this morning. We're going to be looking at a good ending. It's the ending of the Apostle Paul's life. He finished well. As we've studied this letter between Paul and Timothy, it's filled with so much passion. This is the last letter that Paul wrote. These are the last recorded words. He's in a dungeon in a prison in Rome. He's about ready to be executed. And as we go through this chapter this morning, we're going to highlight several things. So would you join me in verse 1? I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. The first thing to note is the charge. 
What does it mean to charge? It's to solemnly insist and to warn. It's to move to action. You think of a general preparing his troops for battle, and he charges them, doesn't he? He encourages them. He exhorts them. He says, it's time to go. As Paul is passing away and training this young pastor, he charges him. And what does he charge him by? Not by the Apostle Paul, but by the Lord Jesus Christ, by God the Father. This is before the Lord, knowing that Jesus is going to appear, that Christ is going to return. And we're going to find that Paul mentions this twice. The appearing of Christ is very important to the Apostle Paul. And do you realize even as a believer that you're going to have to give an account to God for your life? It's not a judgment for salvation. That's finished in the work of Jesus Christ when you believe in his death and resurrection. So what is the judgment for us as believers? 1 Corinthians 3 describes it as this, as our lives will pass through a fire, and the things that were done for Christ will be gems. But the things that we did for ourselves are going to burn up as wood, hay, or stubble. So those things that we did for Christ, we're going to receive a reward. But those things that we did for ourselves, they're going to be burned up and we're going to suffer loss. This needed to be reminded for Timothy that in his life as a pastor, he was going to have to give an account to God. It's important for pastors to remember that and understand that. This is the strongest charge that could be given. It's for pastors, but for all believers. At some point, you've got to give an account for your life. And you're not giving account for someone else's life. A lot of times we're very aware of what's right and wrong in other people's lives without being open to how we're doing with the Lord. Go on to verse 2. Here's the particular of the assignments for Timothy. He's to preach the word. The word preach is to proclaim, to announce, to herald. In these ancient times, as the king, the governor, would send a message, he would see, send it with a vehicle of a herald. The herald would come into the city, blow a trumpet, get everyone's attention, post the announcement of the king. And that's the idea here, is it's not Timothy's words. It's not Timothy's message. He's not to entertain people. He's not to share his own philosophies, his good ideas. He's to preach the word of God. Remember last week at the end of chapter 3, we learned, we studied that God's words, it's inspired. It's God-breathed. And so he's to preach this word. And every pastor that has been given the responsibility, the privilege, and the honor of leading God's people, serving God's people, at some point when they go home to be with the Lord, at Christ's appearing, at his second coming, they're going to have to give an account. I'm going to have to give an account. What did you declare to God's people? Did you preach the word? This is the charge to all pastors of all time. But it's also an encouragement for all of us. As you travel through life, what do you share with people? When your kids ask you questions, do you give them the word of God? When a friend comes to you and says, my marriage is struggling, what do you share with them? Those are opportunities to preach and declare the word. In preaching the word, be ready in season and out of season. In season is like this, Sunday morning at nine. Every week I know that Sunday morning's coming, Saturday night service is coming, the 11 o'clock, Wednesday night service, I have preparation time to get ready for this moment. But there's other times that I don't get any warning. There's times that you don't get any warning as well. And it's a God-divine appointment. He set it up for you. We want to be ready in those seasons as well. So how can we be ready at all times to have a life in the Word, to be studying 
and memorizing the Word of God. Have you ever found that when you're doing your devotions and you're reading and God puts a verse on your heart that many times you'll run into someone during that day and you'll go, oh, that verse not only ministered to me, but it also is perfect for the situation that they're going through in life as well. Here's how God's word's used in our lives. To convince, to rebuke, to exhort with all long suffering and teaching. So as we share the word and preach the word, it is to convince. It is to reason with people to bring them to a place of assurance of what the scripture says. But also God's word's used to rebuke. It's used to correct. It's to bring us back into to line. The word of God's used to exhort us. To exhort means to take the necessary step. Sometimes we need God's word and we need someone to share God's word with us that's going to encourage us to take that step that we're unwilling to take. The attitude in which we do this with is so important. It's an attitude of patience. It's an attitude of long-suffering. It's an attitude of teaching and and instruction. I kind of think of it as a child that's learning to walk, and we have four kids, and they're all walking. It's amazing. You know, it happens, doesn't it? And when you, a child's learning how to walk, you exhort them, you encourage them. You're like, come on, take, take the next step. But you do it with patience and you do it with instruction. You don't get in your toddler's face and go, come on, you need to walk. Come on, you sissy, go for it, right? <laughs> At least I hope you don't do that, right? <laughs> you do it with long suffering and, and you do it with teaching. And that's the attitude in which that we're to share God's word with, with one another. Preach the word. This is what Timothy's facing. This is what we're facing today as well. It says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There's going to be a time, Timothy's warned, where people don't want to hear the word of God. This word sound, it means healthy. Healthy doctrine. We've mentioned it many times in this series, in this study. Doctrine is what we believe about God and how God wants us to, to live our lives. And there comes a time where people say, I don't want sound doctrine. Now, why would they not want sound doctrine? Maybe because it's a little bit too much work. You know, as we study the scriptures here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, that I'm encouraging you to do some work with me. We're going to study God's word for 40 or 45 minutes. We're going to go through books of the Bible. And for some people, they're going to go, that takes too much time. And that's just a little bit too much work. I want a church that gets me in and out in 45 minutes and we're done. I want a sermonette for Christianettes and we're done. We're out of here, you know. So I don't want to listen to to sound doctrine. Sometimes sound doctrine, it is going to challenge us. It's going to convict us. It's not going to line up with our own selfish desires. And there's times when people say, you know, I don't want that. And so this is what they do in replace of sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, their, their own selfishness, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And literally this is ears that desire to be tickled. I I want it to sound good. I want it to be entertaining. I I want my ears to be itched. So they're going to go find teachers for themselves. And I've got to tell you, there's always going to be teachers that are going to tell you what you want to hear. You can go out and you can find those today. You can heap up for yourself. You can seek out a teacher that is just going to tickle your ears. And then verse 4 Notice what happens when they do this, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. If you're taking notes, you might want to just write down, terrible downgrade, terrible downgrade. Instead of having the truth of God's word, 
Now all they have is fables. Now that all they have is stories. They sound good. They're entertaining. They're, they're funny. But they're not filled with the truth of God's word. I think that God's word should be taught with creativity. It should be taught with illustration. God gave us a sense of humor. It should be used in delivering God's word. But all of those things are secondary to, are they teaching God's word accurately? Amen? So when you're looking for a church, you shouldn't necessarily be evaluating the pastor on how funny is he, how good is his illustrations, That's important, but it's so far secondary to, is he giving me the word of God? Is he giving me sound doctrine? Would hate to be in that place where we lose sight of God's truth in order to have fables. Fables aren't going to set you free. We sang this morning that in the name of Jesus, and there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. Jesus said, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's power in Christ. There's power in his word. His word sets us free. We come now to verse 5, but you be watchful in all things. Timothy's to be aware of what's happening around him spiritually, that he's in a spiritual battle. Endure afflictions. There's times that Timothy, and for us as well, we simply have to endure. We have to put our head down and realize there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be persecution that comes with godliness, and endure it. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So what is an evangelist? Evangelist is a gift that God gives to an individual where they're blessed in a certain way to communicate with people that don't know Christ as their Savior, as well as equipping the body of Christ on how to share their faith. In Ephesians, we find that evangelist is listed with pastor, teacher, prophet, and evangelist. So there is an office that God gives, a calling that God gives to a particular person. Billy Graham, I think, is a great example of an evangelist that that God raised up. Greg Laurie is an example of an evangelist that God raised up. So does that mean, if we're not an evangelist, that we never share our faith? No, not at all. God's called all of us to the Great Commission. Agreed? Amen? What's the Great Commission? To go and make disciples. And so here, Timothy is encouraged to do the work of an evangelist even though that it seems that his primary gifting is being a pastor and a teacher. Because we need to remember that there's lost people that don't know Christ that are going to hell. This morning as we're gathered together in this comfortable place, there's a whole city filled with people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That hell to them is a joke. That hell is, yeah, I'm going to go there because when it freezes over, I'm going to snowboard there too. I'm going to ski there too. I want to go there and I'm going to party with all all of my friends. And the heart of a pastor and the heart of a believer, we should break for those that don't know Christ as their Savior. And so Timothy needs to be reminded of this. Be involved in your community. Be involved in those that don't know Christ as their Savior. Do the work of an evangelist. We need to be challenged every once in a while to be asked the question, how many people in our lives don't know Christ as their Savior? that we can say we have a relationship with. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He took the good news to those that needed a physician. You may be wondering, how do I do this work of evangelism? Pray for someone that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. And then begin to share with them the things that God has done in your life. Share your testimony, God's story in your life. This is what my life was like before Christ. And this is how Christ has got a hold of my life. And I'm not perfect by any reason. 
but God is working in and through my life. That's a great place to be able to start. And I also think it's very helpful to ask questions. Give them an opportunity to talk. What do you think about Christ? Do you believe in God? Why don't you believe in God? Or, okay, let's examine what you think about Jesus Christ without getting all huffy and puffy and go, you don't believe in Jesus? You know? Okay, you don't believe in Jesus? Well, why don't you believe in Jesus? And begin to enter into that conversation and that dialogue with them. The end of verse 5 tells us, fulfill your ministry. What is it that God has given you to do? Fulfill it. In your marriage, fulfill it. With your kids, fulfill it. With your roommates, fulfill it. In your high school campus, in your college campus, fulfill it. In your workplace, in the church, fulfill your ministry. Verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. A drink offering comes from the Old Testament. It was part of the daily offerings that were given in the tabernacle, then eventually in the temple. There was a lamb that would be slaughtered in the morning and offered and in the evening, but also there would be this daily sacrifice of the drink offering poured out upon the altar. And Paul used this as an illustration of his life. My life's to be poured out in worship to God, every day being a living sacrifice. This is how Paul lived on a daily basis, and this is what he's expressing at the end of his life. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knew that he was not going to escape this dungeon, to be delivered from this prison, to walk the streets of Rome. He knew that this dungeon was going to be the place where he would be executed to walk on the streets of gold. God had prepared his heart. Many times in Paul's life, he was delivered from a jail, delivered from being stoned to death. But at this point, God said, it's time for him to go home. Every one of us has got an expiration date stamped on the back of our head. We just don't know what the date is. We don't know when we're going to depart to go home to be with the Lord. Sometimes you get that warning. Sometimes you know it's the six-month countdown. But other times you don't know. Today could be the day of our departure. Could be a car accident. Could be a heart attack. Something that is unforeseen. Paul knew that his departure was coming. God had given him that warning. And here is Paul's memoirs of his life. It's very short but very powerful a verse to know and under, underline, to hide in our hearts. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. These are important illustrations that Paul would use frequently in his writings and his teaching. And he's able to say, as I look back on my life, I did fight the good fight. Now, there's a lot of fights that we engage in that we can't say are good. True? But this is the good fight. What fight is Paul talking about? First, he knows that there's a real enemy, Satan, that doesn't want to see people reached, that wants to destroy the life of believers. And Paul's saying, I've engaged in that battle. I've put on the armor of God. I've wrestled in that principalities and powers. Another fight that we have is with our own sinful flesh. Paul had it too. In Romans chapter 7, he said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, well, I end up doing those things. I'm looking forward to the day of waking up in Jesus' presence and being like him and no longer struggling with sin. Won't that be great? Wonderful. And so Paul says, I did engage in that battle against my sinful flesh 
as well. There's a battle with the world, not the physical world, but the system of the world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. He says, I've engaged in that battle. Paul's not saying that he was perfect, but he did say that he fought the fight that God had for him. Also, he says, I've finished the race. I finished the things that God had for me. In Philippians 3, Paul said, I'm pressing on to lay hold of those things for which God laid hold of me. Paul realized that he was saved with a purpose like all of us. God saved us with a calling, and so he wanted to move forward and make sure that he was living out the life that God had for him. God's always a forward-moving God, isn't he? He's always wanting to press, us to press forward in the future. Why did God save you? Why did he save me? What does he have for us in the future? I think what's unique about this race and running this race is it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's lifelong. And in this race, there's going to be failure. In this journey, in the walk with the Lord, we're going to have times where we sin, where we fall short, where we walk in full-on rebellion. I really appreciated the song that Jason chose this morning about when there's no song to sing and the heart is not in a place of worship and we realize we've got to get back to that first love redo those those first works there's going to be moments like that in our journey with the Lord when we look inside and we go you know what my heart's not where it should be and the important thing is not to get stuck in condemnation but to get up get up everybody's going to fail. Don't let that failure be the defining moment of our lives and say, I'm going to repent. I'm going to receive God's forgiveness, his power, his strength to live differently. Now I'm going to continue in the race that, that God has for me. In a race, it's not so much how you finish or excuse me, how you start. It's how you finish. That's everything in a race. You can have a terrible start, but if you finish well, oh man, you, you completed the race. This is harder than we realize, to finish in this life well. How do we know? Because we look at the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, many of them had a terrible finish. They walked with God in a big chunk of their life, then they end in compromise. There's something about the last lap of our life that it's difficult to finish full stride with Jesus Christ. There's something in us that says, I'm just going to kick back a little bit. There's something that happens where the things of this world start to look even more, more tempting. And so how does this work out practically in our lives to finish the race? To me, it comes down to daily obedience. Daily obedience. A life, a legacy of living for God happens today as we say, Christ, thank you so much that you love me. Thank you that you died for me and rose again. I'm gonna take up my cross and follow you. And then that leads to a life where we can look back and say, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've kept it. To keep the faith means that he continued to trust in Christ's finished work. Faithfulness is also implied when he declares, I've kept the faith. Verse 8, finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. This crown is meaningful to Paul. He realizes the reward was coming in heaven. We won't always experience the reward here on this earth. It's always worthwhile. But the crown for Paul is laid up in heaven. He didn't experience the reward in this, this dungeon. Here's a wonderful promise. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
Here's a promise. If you love Christ's appearing, if you're looking forward to Christ's return, then God's got a special crown for you. You're saying, well, why would I even care about crowns? Because the streets are paved with gold. We find in the book of Revelation that the elders laid down their crowns at the feet of Jesus in worship. That's why the crown's going to matter. Not because we walk around heaven going, hey, look at my bling bling. I got the crown of righteousness. That doesn't seem quite right, does it? It's, oh, Jesus, you're so wonderful. You saved me. You gave me the grace to be able to live out this life. You gave me this gracious gift of this crown. It's yours. I'm laying it down at the feet of worship. Maybe you've heard the Christian band, Casting Crowns. It's the whole idea of worship. I'm laying it down at the, the feet of Jesus. So you should care about crowns too. I should care about crowns too. And here's the promise. If you love his appearing, God's gonna give you a crown of righteousness as well. It means something to the Lord. I think it means something to us as well when someone loves our appearing. You got to hand it to your dog if you have your dog. Your dog just loves your appearing. You don't even have to be the great best dog owner. I'm not the best dog owner. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend. If you want to find another church because I'm not the best dog owner, that's okay. But I'm not. I, I love my dog. I'm, you know, my, my dog, but my dog is good to me. And I come home, and my dog's always happy to see me. She loves my, my appearing. One of the best moments of every day is coming home from work and having my kids love my appearing. You know, remember back to when you had young kids, or if you don't have kids, I'm sure you, you've seen it. But they just run to you, and they're like, Dad, and they want this big hug. And you're like, I haven't done anything to deserve this. I've been at work all day. And I come home and you think that I'm the best thing since, since sliced bread. It touches my heart. And it means something to God as well when we're like, oh, I just can't wait for Jesus to appear. If that's where you're at this morning, where you're longing for the coming of Jesus Christ, to see him, to behold him, for Christ to make things right, there's a crown of righteousness for you. The next thing that we see and we highlight here is the abandonment. Uh, and the abandonment that Paul experienced be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Paul's in a place of loneliness where some of his most trusted companions have forsaken him in his darkest hour when he needed someone. Demas in Colossians 4 verse 14, we find that he was traveling with Paul on a missionary journey. It says, Demas greets you. This isn't some random person to Paul, but this was someone that Paul trusted dearly. Paul didn't just allow anyone to come with him on a missionary journey. He knew it was going to be hard. He required people to be faithful. Demas was one of these men. In Philemon verse 24, Demas is called a fellow laborer, but now we find that Demas has forsaken Paul because he loved this present world. He was more filled with the comforts of this life, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and he says, forget you, Paul, I'm, I'm leaving you. And we go on to read Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. So Titus was sent to this region, Dal Dalmatia. Verse 11, only Luke is with me. Only Luke. Beloved Luke, the physician who wrote the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, traveled with the Apostle Paul, if you are in a dungeon-like experience, probably no doubt you're going to have some demises. You're going to have some people that forsake you for one reason or another. It may just be too hard. They can't emotionally take it. They say, you know what? I'm out. 
but you will hopefully have a Luke. And if you do have a Luke, cherish them, that person that stands with you in that dark hour. I love the second half of verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me in ministry. If you know Mark's story, he's also referred to as John Mark. In the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas were close friends. Barnabas was the one that really brought Paul into ministry. They began to go out and plant churches and do missionary journeys. On their first missionary journey, they took John Mark. John Mark says, I'm going home. This is too hard for me. And he opts out. He's a young man. Now it's time for the second missionary journey. Guess who Barnabas wants to take? John Mark. (laughs) And Paul says, not on your life. This guy left us high and dry. He can't come. These guys, Paul and Barnabas, had a sharp contention about it. They divided over the issue of John Mark and two missionary journeys developed. Paul and Silas, Barnabas and John Mark. We don't see John Mark and Paul ever crossing again until this point. And Paul's at the end of his life and he sees the value in John Mark and he says, will you bring him to me? He's valuable to me in ministry. Kudos to John Mark. Do you know how hard it would be to have someone like the Apostle Paul says, hey, you're not traveling with me because you left me high and dry. And John Mark took the second chance that was given to him by Barnabas. He learned from his mistake, walked with the Lord, and now at the end of Paul's life, there's restoration, there's reconciliation that takes place. And Paul says, bring to me John Mark. A wonderful story. Verse 12, and Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus, which is where Timothy is pastoring, he may have been the one who brought the letter to Timothy in Ephesus. Verse 13, bring the cloak that I've left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchment. This is hugely significant, church, and this is why is Paul never wanted to stop learning, even though he knew he was about ready to die. He says, I want the books. I especially want the parchments. Don't forget the coat. Winter's coming. I need you guys to come quickly. It's extremely cold in this dungeon. And in a place of suffering in a dungeon, it's very easy to say, I'm just going to sleep it off. I'm going to kind of check out in life. I'm not going to necessarily do anything bad, but I'm not really going to do anything good either. And Paul's saying, I'm hungry to learn more about Jesus Christ. Paul's in love with Christ. Christ had appeared to Paul. And it wasn't that he was wanting to learn more about Christ to prepare for a sermon or to write a letter or to do a church plan. He simply wanted to learn about Christ because Christ was so valuable to him and Christ was so, so good to him. I think this is the key factor into finishing well. He had a hunger for Christ. He wanted to continue to learn about Christ. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Paul's not angry. He's not vengeful. He's allowing the Lord to bring the justice in Alexander's life. He is trying to warn Timothy of a wolf, though. In verse 16, at my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. As Paul would be on trial, there would be opportunity for advocates of Paul to come and testify on his behalf Paul says nobody came. Nobody came, but may it not be charged against them. Paul is extending the forgiveness that he had received from the Lord. 
Here's the testimony, another highlight for us. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all of the Gentiles might hear. In a dungeon, continue to long to learn of Jesus Christ, but also know that the Lord is with you. Maybe you feel forsaken. You're walking through a valley. The Lord's with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you, and he will strengthen you. Without going through these kind of experiences, we won't have this kind of testimony. Corey Tin Boom, who was taken to a concentration camp because her and her family rescued Jews during the Holocaust. Her sister was, was murdered. She lived through it. She wrote these words, you'll never know that God is all you need until God is all that you have. And Paul came to that place and he said, God stood with me and God strengthened me. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of a lion. We don't have a lot of detail on that. We don't know the specifics of it, but God delivered him out of the mouth of a lion. Verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for the heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew Nero wouldn't have the final word. He knew the Romans wouldn't have the final word. In fact, his own execution wouldn't be the final word. God has the final word. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work, even if it means God's taking me to heaven. Here's God's promise to the believer. God will preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. He will complete that good work that he started for his glory. The greeting, we find another highlight in verse 19. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. We'll be learning about them in the book of Acts as we're studying on Wednesday night. A wonderful husband and wife team that served the Lord. And the household of Anisiphorus, these are dear friends of Paul. He's saying, I want you to greet these guys. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I've left in Miletus sick. To me, this is important to note because Paul had to leave a guy, Trophimus, in Miletus sick because there is this teaching that's happening in the church that if you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. Ever heard that? So you get sick and you pray for healing and if you're not healed, then there's a lack of faith in your life or there's unconfessed sin. Does God heal? Absolutely. Should we pray for healing? Absolutely. Sometimes, does he choose in his sovereignty to allow us to suffer? Absolutely. Sometimes God says no. And to trust him in those moments because if God healed everyone every time, then why was Miletus sick? Are you going to try to build an argument that Paul had a lack of faith? That if Paul would have just prayed a little bit harder, Miletus would have been sick? That Miletus, this missionary, had a, had a lack of faith? Sometimes the Lord will allow us to suffer for, for his glory. Verse 21 do your utmost to come to me before winter. I could use that down jacket, guys. It's getting cold. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pundis, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. These are believers in Rome, that they're greeting the church in Ephesus. This is the goodbye. This is the final words from Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Isn't that a great departure from Paul? Amen. Jesus Christ with your spirit. It's the unseen things of life that's difficult. It's your heart. It's your spirit. It's the joys and the challenges that are happening in your inner being, the struggles. And may Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Amen. Grace is the theme of the Bible. It was definitely the theme of the Apostle Paul's life. He'd experienced it personally, radically, 
and shared it definitely, and he leaves us in the grace of Jesus Christ, God's unearned and undeserved, unmerited favor. So as we look at this chapter in this section of scripture, consider this. How are you fighting? Are you fighting the good fight of faith? Are you in the fight? Do you realize there's a real battle? Are you desiring to see people to come to know Christ as their Savior? Are you doing war with your flesh and this system that's being thrown at us? Or instead of fighting, are you sleeping? It's a spiritual condition that we can, can be in. And it's worth asking when it comes to my life, am I fighting and how am I running? Am I running this race that God has given me to do? God's given you something to do today. And for us to walk in daily obedience with the Lord. Because at the end of your life, we've summed up this whole First and Second Timothy with the theme of legacy. Hopefully for us in our lives, a legacy is more than just how big your house was, how much money you had, how nice of cars. I think every parent, grandparent longs to leave something physically, materially, money-wise to their kids. But more than that, we want to leave a spiritual legacy with our kids. As we end our lives, as we come to that departure that the Lord has for us, to be able to look back and say, I don't have regrets. I wasn't perfect, but I fought the good fight. I ran the race. I was all in. I gave it all that that I had. I kept the faith. And as people, no doubt, will gather at our funeral and gather at our memorial service, are they going to say things like, well, they were really great at making money. Are they going to say, I remember that they prayed for me. They, they, they prayed for me. I remember when I was down and out and really going through a hard time and they would call me and they would say, hey, let, let, let's grab, grab coffee. I love hearing those kind of stories at a funeral and a memorial service. They say, you know what I remember about dad? He was a man of the word. He read his Bible and he did his best to live out the truth of, of God's word. I remember mom being on her knees and being a, a, a woman of prayer. High school students sometimes go home to be with the Lord and to hear other high school students come and say, you know what, she loved Christ. She brought her Bible to school. She was sharing truth with others. So here's a practical application of 1 and 2 Timothy. First is be receiving, receiving from the Lord and godly men and women in your life. So important. Say, I'm gonna be a person who's learning and receiving, but then intentionally share what God is teaching you with someone else. If every single one of us pick two or three people that we're going to pour our lives into, it's how the kingdom of God is multiplied. That's going to be the joy of your life. That's going to be the joy of my life. It's two or three people. God may have them in your life for a year or they may be in your life for for 20 years, but to say, I'm going to intentionally share with them the things that God has taught me. You might be saying, I'm only known the Lord for one year. I'm one year in the Lord. Or there's people that have only known the Lord for six weeks. There's people that don't know Christ as their Savior. We don't need to make it complicated. We simply, through relationship, begin to share with them the things that God has shared with us. Let's pray together. Father, as we close this study, we're so thankful for people that have gone out of their way and invested in our lives and 